This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Eye on Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Jessica Clement. Welcome to Eye on Washington. I'm your host, Jessica Clement, and I'm joined today by someone you are probably familiar with, Drew Friedman, a reporter with Federal News Network. Drew, thanks thanks so so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I appreciate you stepping in um, when we had a little guest snafu earlier this week. So stay tuned for very special guests next month. So Drew, thank you so much for joining me for this month's episode of Eye on Washington. Every month, the show looks at federal employee and retiree policy initiatives in Washington. We examine the proposals Congress, the administration, and agencies are considering, and which ones have the possibility of becoming reality. Since it's January, I want to start with the two changes the federal community is feeling most this month. First, the pay raise for federal employees, and then also the cost of living adjustment for federal retirees, anyone receiving Social Security benefits. 2024 brought the largest pay raise for federal employees in recent years, right, Drew? So tell me a little bit about that. What changes are federal employees seeing in their paycheck this month? So, Jesse, well, thanks again for having me. And, you know, the paychecks are going to go up pretty significantly just this month. I believe the first one was uh, just a couple of days ago. The average uh, pay raise for 2024 is 5.2%. And as you said, that's a really significant, really big pay raise. It's actually the largest since 1980 during the Carter administration. At that time, there was a 9.1% pay raise. So it's a little bit less this time, but 5.2% is huge. It's something that has been in the works since last March. Uh, President Biden included that in his budget proposal made it official, uh, made the plans official in August, and then it was, of course, finalized just before the end of 2023. And it follows after a 4.6% pay raise for 2023 as well. So we've seen a couple big raises back-to-back for federal employees. And this includes both civilian and military employees got the same amount, 5.2%. That's great. Of course, these things, this this great news happens after I've left the federal community, but I'm pleased to see that federal employees are getting the recognition, you know, that they deserve from the administration and from Congress. So we're in a situation right now where appropriations bills are operating under continuing resolution right now through the beginning of March. Like, is this something that could change in the appropriations process or are we good to go on an average 5.2%? And I do want to stress that it is an average 5.2%. You know, some feds will see more based on their localities. Others will see a little bit less. Right. So with the appropriations process, uh, nothing was included. There was no language included about the pay raise. So that means the 5.2% is just going to continue. It's already in effect, I believe, for the first paycheck of 2024 for the first full pay period uh, mm-hmm. of this year. But I think where we might see a little bit of concern or like struggle is just with the continuing resolutions is how are agencies going to fund the uh, larger pay raises or the larger paychecks for employees uh, that might involve a little bit of moving things around, shuffling around uh, until there can be some full year funding there. So yeah, that is something definitely to watch going forward. I did see a few clips of members of Congress, you know, complaining that federal agencies can't absorb 
you know, this pay raise that they're going to have to find the money for it. It's going to take from other programs, blah, blah, blah. You know, and now I have the luxury of saying this, being the host of something like this, instead of being in your position when I couldn't say things like this is then maybe members of Congress should do their jobs and pass appropriations bills in a timely manner. And we wouldn't have this problem. But, you know, here we are. <laughs> Drew, one of the things I also want to cover is like how the federal employee pay raise is calculated. Like where did that 5.2 number come from? Because I think, and you and I will talk about this later in the show, you know, we're all kind of feeling the effects of inflation, um, which we'll talk about when we talk about the COLA, but like some people may be looking at 5.2%, you know, in the private sector and being like, whoa, like that's really high. Like those are my tax dollars. And some people may be looking at that and be going like, yeah, but have you gone to the grocery store lately? You know, that's what I think when I see 5.2%. But I think these conversations kind of lose sight of what the federal employee pay raise is meant to be, right? Like how it's not tied necessarily to cost of living. So can you kind of educate our audience on how that 5.2% came to be? Yeah, no, that is a really great question. It's a little bit complicated, but it's all really important to understand. So the way that it's calculated is actually based on comparing federal wages to private sector wages. So the government looks at the Employment Cost Index, or ECI, from the year prior, and I believe it's they subtract half a percent to determine generally what the um, federal pay raise will be. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes, like you asked a little bit earlier, Congress can intervene, and they have in some years, so that number is not always um, exactly the ECI, but that's generally what you can expect, at least based on the Title V in the U.S. Code. And I think it is important to mention, too, this idea of locality pay, which, Jesse, you referenced a little bit earlier, too. The 5.2% is just the average it's a 4.7% raise that everyone gets plus an average of a 0.5% locality pay adjustment. So depending on where federal employees work and live, that number will look a little bit different. So I think for 2024, the actual raises ranged from about 4.9% to 5.7%. So there's a little bit of wiggle room in there. It's, it just depends on how much private sector workers in your locality are making, and that's going to determine how much exactly you get added to your paycheck if you're an empl- a federal employee. So to sum up, and thank you for that exceptionally detailed explanation, because I think this conversation gets lost a little bit, um, as I, I think a lot of people know, because I reference it in my show frequently, my husband is now a federal retiree who's not at all pleased that his cost of living adjustment was couple percentage points less than the federal employee pay raise. That pay raise is not meant to keep pace with inflation. That pay raise is meant to keep pace with private sector wages, right? So the 4.7 is the ECI minus half a percent, right? Or is the 5.2 the ECI minus half a percent? It's the 4.7. Right. So like that's how private sector wages moved in the previous year. And the federal pay is meant to keep pace with that. But I think, Drew, because of that, and we're seeing a larger raise than we have in years previously, we are now faced with a more stressed out pay compression system that we may have seen in the past. Is that accurate? That is definitely (laughs) accurate to say. Um, Pay compression is an issue that's been around for a very long time for the federal workforce, but it's something that has gotten worse in recent years. And especially now with the 5.2% raise, you're seeing more and more different 
steps and grades on the GS system, the general schedule pay system, hit that pay compression and kind of start feeling the effects of it. So that is a phenomenon where it depends, again, on where you uh, work and what your locality is to see exactly which steps on the GS pay system are affected. But it affects a lot of GS-15s. And I think at this point, after the 5.2% raise, we now have about 60% of pay localities on the GS uh, system are being impacted by pay compression to some extent. It's the worst in the San Francisco and Bay Area. You're actually seeing a couple of the higher steps of GS-14s being impacted by pay compression as well now. So uh, that just means that, you know, even if you're technically entitled to a 5.2% raise or somewhere around there for 2024, or if that raise would take your pay above the pay for level four of the executive schedule, then you're essentially going to be capped at that amount. Uh, For 2024, it's $191,900. So if you're anywhere above that, at least for most uh, civilian feds, it would get capped to that amount. So that was going to be my next question. So that pay compression the general schedule, so you're, anyone on the general schedule is tied to that executive level four, right? So what is executive level four, right? You said it's 191. So if I'm a GS-15, right, step 10, is my SES supervisor that step four? On the executive schedule, uh, it is a lot more, it's like political and other senior lead- leaders in government. So it's its own separate uh, pay scale. And yeah, I believe that you have a lot of members, political members of the SES um, on there, as well as some kind of um, more senior level executives in government who are politically appointed. Which I think probably goes without saying then it is a deterrent to take on more responsibility as a federal employee when you are not going to see any sort of pay increase for moving from a GS-15 to um, a senior executive level job, you are essentially in many localities making the same amount of money um, as the often hundreds of employees that you, you know, supervise. Um, I always like to take an opportunity to debunk myths um, while I talk about federal pay. It was something we did a lot at NARF. We did it monthly in the magazine. They still do it to highlight the things that people think are true that are, in fact, not true. And I think this is one of those opportunities where it's worth pointing out that members of Congress did not get that 5.2% pay raise, right, Drew? That I think the last time Congress gave themselves a pay raise was 2008, I want to say, maybe 2009. And we are in a situation where some federal employees, because the members of Congress are also on that executive schedule, you know, their pay not increasing can also have that detrimental effect where federal employees are compressed because of it. But because I like to take any opportunity to to debunk myths, I'm just going to point out that members of Congress did not vote themselves a pay raise um, as part of that 5.2. And I'm just going to look at you to confirm that, (laughs) right? Yeah, no, that's right. There is a pay freeze uh, for the executive schedule. Those that are paid through that different pay system, that doesn't mean they get 
you know, $0 more. So those on the uh, level four of the executive schedule do get a little bit of a pay raise, but it's not that it's not as much as the 5.2%. I believe it was somewhere more around the 4%, uh, maybe a little bit over that. So because of that, it's a little bit slower to see the the effects of pay compression, but over time you do have a lot more people hitting that ceiling. So even though both are going up, you have the executive schedule going up a little bit less than the uh, the federal pay raise a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time. Well, thanks for the opportunity to allow me to get on my soapbox about that. We have to take a quick break. My guest today is Drew Friedman, a reporter with Federal News Network. I'm Jessica Clement, and you are listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Network. I am your host, Jessica Clement, and my guest today is Drew Friedman, a reporter with Federal News Network. Thank you so much, Drew, for the breakdown of federal pay. I want to switch now to the cost of living adjustment, which also took effect this month for federal pensions and Social Security benefits. And that COLA, cost of living adjustment COLA, was 3.2%. But if you are a first retiree, you only saw a 2.2% cost of living adjustment um, to your FERS pension. So, Drew, let's start with the COLA and how the COLA is calculated, how we get to that 3.2%. Great question. And the COLA is based on the Consumer Price Index for Urban Wage Earners and Clerical Workers. For short, it's CPIW. This is something that's measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it uh, tracks over time, and you see each year around October, the Social Security Administration will announce what the cost of living adjustment or COLA will be for the following year. 3.2%, um, you know, that is a fairly large COLA, but it's not quite as large as what we saw the year before. It's actually 8.7%. So huge difference there, but 3.2 is is still quite a significant number. So 3.2%, which is third quarter average from 22 compared to the third quarter average of 2023, looks at the spending habits of urban wage earners and clerical workers. So I'm just going to take this opportunity to point out that the COLA is based on the spending habits of people like you and me, right, who live in urban areas and get paid urban wages and spend our money in urban areas, not necessarily the retirees they are meant to help which is why there is also legislation out there to change the COLA formula to base those calculations on how the population, either like 62 and older, 75, 65 and older, like spend their money. Drew, are you able to tell us a little bit about that COLA calculation and what legislation to that end would do? Yeah. So that one is, it's a bill that I think has been around for at least a couple of years, maybe longer. Several, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely a few years now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so that would change the way the COLA is calculated. Like you said, it would be based instead on the CPIE or the C- Consumer Price Index for the Elderly. And I think you have a lot of organizations like uh, NARF, for example, saying that this is simply something that makes sense. If you're going to be tracking 
you know, the cost of living adjustment for people who are elderly, then why not base it on the index that measures the spending habits of elderly people? I think that um, the CPIE specifically places more emphasis on, you know, healthcare spending, which mm-hmm. is is the way that there's a little bit of a difference there. But again, even though we've seen that bill around for quite some time, it's not yet been passed. It's still pending legislation in Congress. It would, as people may expect, mean a larger cola, not a smaller one, I think to the tune of about half a percent. Uh, Maybe it's 0.3%. I can't remember. It's been a few years since I've talked about this issue. But because of that, it's going to cost the federal government a little bit more money, um, which means it's kind of languishing like all those other things in Congress that cost, you know, a little bit of money. So as I said earlier, COLA for Social Security and CSR's benefits was 3.2, but the first folks are only getting 2.2% uh, to their FERS annuity. They still get the 3.2 to their Social Security benefits. Drew, why is that? I also think it was my experience at NARF that this was one of the things that a lot of people did not know. Like we talk about this in coalition meetings. We talk about this in meetings on the Hill. Um, this was a issue that we took to Congressman Connolly, who has in the past introduced legislation to correct this. Why is that? Why the first folks get less than the CSRs folks? So I think the original idea with that was basically to try to, you know, keep things quote unquote fair between the different types of retirees. So back in the 80s, when you saw the retirement system switch from CSRS over to FERS, FERS uh, annuitants get a little bit different retirement structure with their annuity, with the TSP, uh, et cetera. So the idea was, okay, if they're having that, then this is to kind of keep it fair, keep CSRS retirees at the same level. But of course, over time, I think you have a lot more people uh, coming forward and saying it's it's not really fair. It doesn't really make sense as a policy. And that's where you see like uh, Congressman Connolly, for example, and others uh, just who are you know supporting that bill as well to give FERS retirees the the full COLA amount. Uh, it's also not something that you see every single year. It only kind of gets more attention in years where the COLA is higher. So if the COLA is only, you know, maybe 1%, 2%, mm-hmm. something like that, then you wouldn't see the difference between the different types of federal retirees there. But when it's higher, um, so 3.2%, FERS retirees only got 2.2%. In 2023, when you had the 8.7% COLA, huge COLA for Mm. uh, retirees, FERS annuitants only got 7.7%. So I think that, um, you know, it's something that gets more attention when the COLA is bigger and that over time can have a really um, deleterious effect on your retirement savings to the tune of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars in some cases. Absolutely. Because, you know, the compounding nature of percentage increases, right? you're getting less and less each year, that is over time, thousands, tens of thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, Yeah. For those of you who are like, what? I didn't know this. Just a lay of the land on the formulas. If the COLA is less than 2%, if it's 2% or less, CSRs and FERS retirees get the same. If it's between 2 and 3%, FERS retirees get 2%. And if it is above 3%, like it is this year and last year, 3.2, 8.7, FERS retirees get the COLA minus a percentage thought process being, well, they get Social Security benefits and that get, that is the full COLA. The FERS pension is not meant to be your only retirement savings like a CSRS pension 
was when that system was created. Most FERS and retirees are also going to have their TSP um, that they can rely on, whereas not certainly not every CSRS um, employee participated in the TSP and certainly did not get any matching from the federal government. But while we're on the subject of federal retirement, something that, you know, I haven't really talked about in a few years, let's talk about this retirement wave. You know, I, the statistic I want to say I used time and time again when I was advocating for the NARF members was like 40% of federal managers were eligible to retire in the next five years, like something insane like that, right? For years, we just kept saying the retirement wave is going to crash. It's going to crash. It's coming. It's going to be a mass exodus from the federal government. So, Drew, catch me up to speed over the last two years. Did it crash? Did we see a mass exodus of federal employees? What's I... going on with the retirement <laughs> wave? That is not exactly accurate. I think a lot of people, it's it's still a topic of conversation for sure. I think even even now, even after saying that for years, that's something that continues to be a topic, but it's we're not necessarily seeing it uh, trend that way. In terms of retirement eligibility, of course, I think a lot more people are becoming eligible for retirement over time, but it seems like a lot of federal employees are continuing to work or we're not seeing those numbers uh, spike exactly. So throughout 2023, just last year, there were um, about 89,000 federal employees who filed for retirement. That's actually a bit of a dip. You know, you saw- 89,000 is a dip? Yes. Yeah. Okay. A year or two before that, there were well over 100,000. So there's a pretty significant difference government-wide. Did we see higher retirement numbers in the pandemic overall, or were they, would they, did those numbers trend with the years leading up? So during 2020, I believe there was a significant amount. I, I think it was about 115,000, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, federal employees file for retirement. 2023, you saw a drop off pretty significantly. And, you know, maybe by coincidence or correlation, I don't, um, or not, I don't know. OPM also was doing much better with its retirement processing during 2023. So they were able to cut mm -hmm. down their uh, backlog significantly. Um, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. How are those processing times? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're seeing a trend in the right direction. So in 2020, you had about 36,000 retirement claims from employees that were just unprocessed. Uh, now they've chipped that away very significantly. I think they have um, just about 14,000 or so cases in their uh, inventory right now. So that means the amount of cases that are pending finalization from OPM uh, it's still above their goal. Their OPM's goal is generally to have 13,000 uh, pending retirement cases at any given time. So it's a little bit above that, but it is has been trending very much in the right direction. In terms of the time it takes, it's at 68 days most recently on average from the time that you uh, submit your claim to the time that you get your first payment. OPM's goal is a 60-day average, so it's a little bit above that. Um, and I'll just emphasize, because I hear this a lot from readers, 60 days or whatever that is, is an average. So, of course, you have some people whose retirement processing takes much longer. A lot of times you see um, some more complicated cases. If you have someone who worked at a lot of different agencies, for example, that retirement claim might take a little bit longer to process than average. 
It's interesting you say that. Um, my husband retired in January of 2021. So I got like not quite a firsthand look, but like a closer than a secondhand look at this process, you know, from a less theoretical standpoint, my job at NARF and a more uh, hands-on view of the federal retirement um, and how that process goes and have, you know, and it's nice to see that things have improved. So if a steady inventory is 13,000, what I hear you saying is, you know, the backlog isn't 14,000. The backlog is about a thousand right now. And we definitely always did the same thing at NARF Trust that the average is the average. If you worked in multiple federal agencies, if you had time in different branches of government, if you had military time that makes everything more complicated, we are still in a largely paper-based system, right? That's right? right. Yeah, that's right. That's that's what I that's what I thought. So great. Thanks for the update on federal retirement processing, something I haven't given much thought to over the last three years. Um, we're just January. Got a lot coming up. You know, we still have outstanding appropriations process. Personally, I'm working on the FAA reauthorization. I'm gearing up for that to be kicked down the road a little bit further too. True, as someone who has probably the closest eye on the federal workforce these days, like what are you watching for right now? Like what's next on your radar? There's a couple different things. Uh, honestly, a lot of the stuff that we just covered today are going to be really big topics, I believe, this year. So in terms of retirement, I'm going to be looking for uh, OPMs, you know, how they're going to be handling that over the next year. We talked about how it's a paper-based system right now, but they're trying to modernize it. So it'll be interesting to see what developments happen this year in terms Only of- Only I've heard that before. <laughs> Yeah, they they were there were a couple small things they're trying out. They tried a chatbot pilot. They tried uh, an online application pilot for just a small number of people. So <laughs> it's something. We'll it's yeah, something. it's it's they've taken some small steps and they have said that they're trying to take it, you know, in bite-sized pieces more than just trying to overhaul the whole thing at once. We'll see if anything else happens this year on that. Um, there's also uh, supposedly going to be a proposal to address pay compression from the Biden administration coming right. um, hopefully sometime this year. I'm not really sure what when exactly we'll see that, um, but that could be an interesting way to see, you know, how that uh, issue is going to be developing or how the administration is thinking about trying to tackle that. Um, outside of what we talked about, I think telework and return to office is going to be a huge, huge topic this year. So maybe we can touch base uh, sometime later and see how all that's going. I, every time I talk about that issue, which is frequently, you know, friends, family, you know, I think urban areas are a little bit different than suburban ones when it comes to this issue and return to work. It is, I think this is something that we're going to be talking about for a while. Like, I don't think there's a magic bullet. You know, my office, I'm back in the office at least three days a week. I'm here usually four to five. Right. I think this is something that every U.S. company is grappling with. I don't think anyone's found the magic solution to balancing the flexibility that people seem to enjoy in the pandemic with the general camaraderie and ease of working with your colleagues that comes from face to face interaction. Right. Um, I do not envy um, our federal government and private sector leaders on this because there it doesn't seem to be a solution that. One fits everyone's needs and two makes everyone happy. So, you know, looking forward to talking about that in the future. And 
That is all for our show today. That half an hour always goes so quickly. Uh, Let me thank Drew Friedman with Federal News Network again for coming on. Thank you so much, Drew. Thank you. It was great to sit and chat with you again. I'm Jessica Clement, and you have been listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.